So about a week ago, we got this uh, an email about this latest uh, study from Cornell University, our home institution, and this has also um, come out in a, a couple other places, claiming that women are preferred to men two to one in STEM disciplines in terms of academic hiring. And this study done by Williams and Cece has also um, hit major news sources like CNN mm -hmm. and the New York Times. And basically their study, I believe they did about five different randomized studies where they sent out surveys to faculty and what they designated as STEM or math intensive fields, um, giving them narratives and then CVs of imaginary candidates uh, for both men and women and tried to see whether or not, uh, if there'd be any, any gender bias. And from the results of it, they claim that women, again, are overwhelmingly preferred two to one in these in different positions. And this is the headline that we're seeing from Cornell. This is the headline we're seeing at CNN and New York Times. Um, and the conclusion that they draw, to quote from them, is that efforts to combat formerly widespread sexism in hiring appear to, to have succeeded. Our data suggests it is an auspicious time to be a talented woman launching a STEM tenure track academic career contrary to findings from earlier investigations alleging bias, none of which examined faculty hiring bias against female applicants in the disciplines in which women are underrepresented. Our research suggests that the mechanism resulting in women's underrepresentation today may lie more in the supply side and women's decisions not to apply than on the demand side and anti-female bias in hiring. So that's how they end. And so that seems like turning to Liz Wayne over here as a PhD in biomedical uh, engineering, it sounds like you should be pretty good then, right, according to this? Yeah, it's fantastic. I'm going to industry as soon as I graduate, and I'm yeah. leaving academia yeah. completely behind. So, yeah, thank you for the awareness that I have a better chance of getting a job now. Um, I, I have to say that when I talk to my peers, this is really hard for people to... It's hard to listen to this, um, this um, listen, to read the CNN articles and the Cornell Chronicle articles because they're saying an experience and they're reading experience and saying we have the data to prove an experience that neither myself or my fellow PhD students who are women or um, people who are doing their postdocs or faculty seem to actually agree with. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's just, it just feels very horrible um, that nobody feels or senses this two-to-one bias that they're talking about. In fact, we felt the opposite and that you have to work extra hard to even get a faculty position. Um, no one's really trying to preference you. And if, if that, that preference, it seems only in perception or wanting to look good, but not necessarily in terms of getting that job or getting the award, getting the recognition for your work that allows you to move up to those higher stages. Mm -hmm. So perhaps to go to the study, like as you're saying, there seems to be this big gap between what you and all of the women in STEM that you know have experienced versus the study. And so one criticism we've been seeing recurring time and time again about this particular study is that they didn't use any actual example. Like this is not based on actual hiring practices. Right. Right. These are all completely fictive um, profiles in the co that were delivered in a very particular context that was a narrative context, first of all, which is not how people actually hire, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, from, from what I remember of being a student participant on faculty hiring committees, they have, um, they have the, the CV, right? And you're looking at that, you're looking at their letters of recommendation. Um, and this is probably a good aside to mention that when there are recommendation letters, there's always, there's already some implicit bias even within the recommendation letters where um, men get called genius, women mm -hmm. get called hardworking. Um, 
men get called smart, women just get called, well, they're very diligent, right? And so even mm-hmm. though there's, there's already inherent bias in the recommendation letters. So pair that into the hiring process where you have these, again, recommendation letters, CVs, um, looking at your publications, and then they're looking all at that, and a lot of, there's a group of faculty who are looking at them all at the same time. And that's just not what was simulated, from what I understand, in the papers where they're suggesting there's an improvement in the um, selection of women. Mm-hmm. That's not how it's done. And one of the studies, they did actually use CVs, but again, these are completely fictive CD, uh, CVs, and there's something to be said about like what opportunities would people, uh, do people have different access to the type of opportunities that would end up being a CV line? Because again, mm-hmm. they constructed these two exemplary C, uh, C, uh, CVs for these imaginary candidates. Um, so again, this is sort of like this ideal world, platonic ideal of a situation that they ended up using for this particular study. Um, as well as like the the bias dis, um, of the particular participants who ended up um, participating. Yeah, and you know the other thing I just thought about is when when a candidate comes, it's not just the written application, but they also have to do this day long interview, and I, actually they end up giving seminar talks. Mm-hmm. And even as a student sitting in those talks, where again the whole department is there, anyone who it's an open session. And the way women are viewed when they're giving their presentation can be widely different um, from how a man may be viewed. So there's, so even though there's a written component, there's also a non-written, there's a interaction component. Mm-hmm. And so you have to also take into account the biases that may happen when women are being presented mm-hmm. that this also doesn't take care of. And also the fact is that these faculty who responded knew that the responses were being monitored mm-hmm. and regardless of people's actual feelings, they know that being sexist and hiring is, is something that's frowned upon on and legislated against. So there's a way in which their, their responses perhaps are more about an ideal situation where they're aware of those pressures as opposed to when they're given an actual situation and they're not, there's not an actual study who's, that's looking over them and will be reporting back about what the state of their field is. And I also remember seeing a, another thing is that one of the control groups were actually psychologists who were overwhelming responders. Mm-hmm. And they're pointing that psychology is a much different field from other um, STEM intensive fields um, insofar as that there's a, there is more gender parity, but also that they do take gender as a serious category of discussion. So it's actually like one of the things that they actually study and take seriously. So the parameters and the culture is necessarily different in psychology um, than per se in physics. Right, so questioning whether they were actually an accurate control group is mm-hmm. definitely something that came up. Something that I've seen <clears throat> a lot of critiques have been, um, as an example, it wasn't blind. So, and then you alluded to this before in terms of people, maybe you never said this is a gender study, but people knew what you were asking for when you intentionally give them information about their family lives. Yeah. And when that's actually not even supposed to be a part of the interview process. So people knew. Mm-hmm. Or it would seem like very obvious to guess what you were trying to get at, and you may behave differently because of that. Yeah, so they weren't really being sensitive to the fact that, you know, the type of questions you ask could often affect the type of answers you receive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so as someone who does literary criticism, maybe for those of you, um, for our listeners who aren't in science, maybe could you tell us a little bit about the journal that they published in, this in, PNAS? <laughs> PNAS, Proceedings, um, hopefully I get this right, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Uh-huh. So how's that regarded and like what um, what's your evaluation of that aspect of the study? You know, I, that's I have a real answer. Um, okay. But I also <laughs> I'm laughing because 
I have a publication from PNAS. Oh, okay. So okay. <laughs> I have a 2014 publication from okay, PNAS. Okay, that's good to know. <laughs> so, um, so, so that said, that out of the way, what I know broadly is uh, there are two camps. People either think high quality research comes from there. I, I would like to agree as having yes. a publication there. Um, but the other side of it is that there used to be, and actually it was recently abolished, but there used to be a pathway where if you were a member of this academy, you could have papers submitted. I think maybe it was two a year or something like that. Um, so there was like a short path, there was like an easy pass lane, so to speak, where you, huh, okay. if you were a member, you could get articles in. And what would frequently happen is if you know someone who's in that, who's a member, let's say you're not a member, but you know someone who's a member. So you can say, hey, I have this publication coming. Will you be my editor? Will you be my sponsor, so to speak? Mm -hmm. And that's a kind of backdoor way to get in. You still have to do the peer review, but that first process, you may not have to immediately go through the way other scientists would. So when was that abolished, though? Would that have actually affected the situation? It or? might have. It uh -huh. might have. I'd really have to look it up to confirm, but I do know that that is no longer um, a way that articles can get in. Mm -hmm. And again, in the field, that's why I know that people, again, either think really great research, outstanding, fantastic mm -hmm. members, and also some people like, uh, they just kind of like shake their head and walk the other way when they see something for PNES because they know that there's this um, potential for for bias or not quality research getting in because of who you know. Mm -hmm. So I think one thing we should talk about is a, a little bit of how this has been publicized. As I mentioned before, we're seeing this headline from the Cornell Chronicle, from mm -hmm. CNN, from New York Times, that women preferred two to one. So regardless of the actual content of the study, we also have to think about how is this being received in water culture? And I think we've already been seeing this type of backlash and uh, support for it. And maybe would you like to talk a little bit about that, Liz? Like, How do you see people responding to this? Yeah. I think that's actually that's actually the bigger issue. Not so the study has some flaws, but it got through the peer peer review process fine. The big issue is how um, how it was portrayed in media. Um, so clearly, if you read the whole article, you'll see that they'll make these declarations. Where they say this is a case, but really, you know, these are you know they'll have a bunch of supporting supplementary information but when they when it transferred when the message transferred to news outlets it just said that there's a preference mm -hmm. right and that's not exactly all of their article was saying and so by promoting this idea there's a preference it really affects how people think it discredits people's experiences mm -hmm. it um, gives people the impression that there is a bias there's no more bias when there is bias yeah so for the women the students that I know that I've spoken to about it, they're more concerned than ever that um, if people don't know, how is this going to affect them on the job market? Mm -hmm. How is this going to affect people who go in and have this experience of bias, but everything around them is telling them, actually, that's not a bias. That's just your anecdotal experience. You're one out of many, or none, actually. Like You are the only one who's had this experience. And the other thing that I've seen is and it's actually pretty quick. I thought it was going to be a while before I saw this, but seeing men go, oh, thank God someone's talking about this because I was recently on the hiring market and a woman got the job and I think I'm more qualified than them. So mm -hmm. there's this, this pathway where when you say articles like this, there's this other kind of voice that now men can say um, affirmative action is happening. Yeah, reverse sexism. Reverse sexism is happening. Um, they can explain now, it's just 
very, very problematic because that's not what's happening. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, what's alarming to me is that there's something that's so catchy with the headline two to one, as opposed to the numerous other studies that have been done using real world data about mm -hmm. how women are cited less, they're nominated for few awards, they're less likely to be invited as speakers on panels, their recommendation letters are weaker, they apply to fewer positions, and these are all studies and across multiple different journals and other fields that um, are drawn from real data, not just the hypothetical ones that we see in CC and Williams, but again, there's something that about the catchiness of the two to one that maybe translates much more easily to the popular consciousness. And so I'm also thinking not just of like women in science now, but if we're thinking about uh, current and future generations of uh, little girls growing up, mm -hmm. on the one hand, they might say like, oh, well, maybe I can get into this field. But as you say, like if there isn't uh, being attention paid to changing those type of structures, they may end up being dissuaded, um, even, though, even though CC and Williams mm -hmm. want to believe that uh, the conclusions what people draw is that it, that more women should be drawn to the field than less. Yeah, I, I also I agree with you, and I think that the two to one ratio is misleading because I mean numbers in general, I, percentages are very scary because I can say as a cancer researcher I could say something like um, eating eating apples, just something really generic, that's going to increase your rate of cancer by 1%. Mm -hmm. Well, if your percent, if your, if your um, chances of getting cancer by doing this activity were already 0.000000001 or something, then increasing it by 1%, that's not making a big difference. Mm -hmm. But when people say that there's a 1% increase or even a 50% increase, if you're, again, if your base is so low, then that doesn't mean anything. And so if you consider that fewer women, there aren't many women applicants to begin with, mm -hmm. and then you say there's now a two to one, that still doesn't make you that much more like likely to get that job. Does this make mm -hmm. sense? Like if, if your number, if there are a hundred people applying for this job and there's one woman, and now you've doubled your chances of getting that job, that makes you two out of, <laughs> that gives you a two or something, right? increase your chance of one out of 100 to two out of 100. That doesn't mean you're going to get the job. Mm -hmm. I think there's been a lot of really good responses. I just wanted to gloss over them. So uh, the other sociologist, has, she has a whole great roundup and links to other people. And also Slate has some really good critiques. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they pointed out is that Williams and CC kind of ignore the fact that in the, in the very departments that they sent their surveys out to, there was not gender parity. Like they sent it out to equal numbers <laughs> yeah. of men and women, but they're not actually, they weren't actually looking at the fact about that there is a huge disparity in all the departments that they polled between mm -hmm. men and women. Um, and they also did not control um, in their response for the faculty response, the rank of faculty respondents. Of course, the rank that you're on faculty mm -hmm. would show how much mm -hmm. power you have. And um, a statistic that I think is particularly interesting that shows from the American Institute of Physics analysis that women constituted just 18% of all physics and astronomy university faculty in 2010, and the proportion drops with every rank. So again, that we see this disparity between the idealism of the two to one of the fictive um, CVs that uh, CC and Williams put together versus the actual real world data of the departments that they polled and also what the current um, state of the different fields are. Yeah, I, I, one of the things I thought of was if you really want to do an experiment and see if women have an increased hiring, uh, they're going to be hired, then what I think would be great is to just take the CVs, like after, um, after an admissions process or hiring process has been done, ask that department to see all their candidate CVs, CVs and maybe take out the name but keep the gender and then and then look at that data look at the real data look at mm -hmm. the the applicants that were actually being chosen from and and then what kind of conversations were going on mm -hmm. 
that would have made a lot more sense to me. Yeah, I think also that another worrying thing about um, the broader effect in popular culture for the two to one, uh, the alleged two to one, is that are people just going to be like, okay, we're we're good now. We're not going to have to worry about like you know giving funding for women, like groups like Women in Physics or like mm -hmm. different women in STEM groups at many other universities. I know that Liz, you're part of like the Women in Physics. Uh, group in particular, like, will pe people suddenly say, like, we're good, we're going to stop supporting all these different mechanisms and, like, ignore the fact that there's been so many structures that people have had to put to put in place and really work to to allow women to be where they are right now. Yeah, I, that is a, a big worry. I, even when I read articles that talk about progress for women, they, and, but they usually say something like, we added one more woman. So now you have one woman in your department. How is that progress? How is that anywhere near equality or anywhere near what the actual, because um, I, I think ideally you would want the population of professors or students to sort of mirror the population of the United States, which is where we live in average, right? And you can't do that if you're saying that we're great because we got two people on who are women on a staff of like 30 or something. I think we should also be asking what makes sense. We should be qualifying, like not allowing people to put these headlines on it, say everything's better when their numbers say, nah, it's just a little better. Yeah, or even the fact that once you have that woman in a tenure track position, are you mentoring her enough so that she actually gets tenure? Or do we still see this leaky pipeline that there are fewer, like yes, maybe there are more women at the assistant professor stage, but maybe fewer of them are actually getting tenure, for example. like. It's not, not really thinking in a sustained fashion about, like, it's not just about getting the initial numbers. It's about really sustaining a uh, type of culture that can foster those women and um, subsequent women. Yeah, it's, it, it's almost, a, it's about changing the culture because um, it's sort of like you, you, we say that we want to change the culture. So you recruit a woman or you recruit a minority, but then you don't change anything else. You keep everything the same and then you're upset when they leave because they can't survive there. Uh, I think part of being able to change the culture is actually to admit that things need to change and to allow, to be okay with the fact that the status quo is no longer the way that it was before. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's a huge problem when, I mean, and again, going back to that kind of the counter, counter rift in this where I start to hear men say, and there have been a few examples online as well, and, some colloquial, like again, men friends, like, well, I've seen that women, you do have a bias, you do have extra hiring potential. Mm -hmm. um, the idea that the idea that a man can say that I took their spot as a woman means that they thought they had a spot to begin with, mm -hmm. right? So it doesn't make so there's an inherent um, problem here if you're saying, oh, we'll allow a few women in as long as they don't take my spot. Mm -hmm. Right, that's essentially what people are saying. We'll let women in here as long as I don't have to change anything about the way I do science, anyway, change the way I talk to my colleagues, the way I publish, the way I write my reference letters, the way I advocate. And, and that's completely pro a problem. That's, that, I think that's why we're not seeing real change happen is because we're not actually changing. We're just putting a few people in the picture to make it look like we've done something different. Mm -hmm. Like getting like the few people of color to pose for a diversity photo, right? Right. Yeah. Oh God, I'm in so many diversity <laughs> photos. It's kind of ridiculous. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's really bad. And also, I think one thing that's come up for critique in Williams and CC work, and I've seen um, 
this criticism on some blogs like the other sociologists saying that this is something that has been a thread in a lot of their work is that they often like try, try to attribute problems of sexism to just being women's individual choices. And so mm. I think what we're just talking about very much is that it's not it, like a choice is never a choice in a vacuum. It's never a choice in equal situations. There's always like a different stru different structures that can be put in place to help and um, in ways you can and cannot change a culture to help support them. Like it's not just that a woman was given completely equally opportunities to absolutely every identical candidate and it was just about saying yes or no. There's so many other different pressures at play. Are they getting mentored? Yeah. What type of support are they being given? Um, so that seems to be one part of their analysis that um, could use a little bit of work. Are they being, yeah, and also are they being encouraged to do science? I can, I can easily remember times where I was my only cheerleader. I wanted to get a degree in physics, mm -hmm. and that's why I did it. But I didn't actually have people in my corner saying, you can do this, you should try. I had, instead, what I had, you know, as if you're in college, what you'll know is that you usually, when you declare a major, you have a meeting with the undergraduate chair of that major. And I remember him saying to me, he said, oh, your grades are sort of okay. I guess you'll make it. <laughs> and, you know, he, and he says that, he didn't say, and it, that was like the least encouraging thing that could have ever happened. But I wanted the degree and that's why I got it. And I know so many people who would have been turned around by that. And opposite of that, I know so many people who were also in my major in my same year who didn't get those kind of responses from him, mm -hmm. who might've had equally bad grades. And then my, bad, my grades weren't bad, but they they weren't they were they weren't told like oh maybe you'll be okay they said oh yeah this is great you're gonna be fine. It reminds me of another study I saw that was kind of funny that I think something like um, when men and women uh, are thinking on high school level fairly early on or in the same like math classes mm -hmm. women are more likely to get discouraged by B's and that's why they'll stop because they yeah. hold themselves to a higher standard whereas guys with C's they're totally fine with that and they'll continue with as a major because they don't really feel like this pressure to succeed on that same level or like they mm -hmm. just feel so and I guess it doesn't bother them to the same extent, whereas women are more are likely to give up because they're being held to such a higher standard or they, feel, they hold themselves to such a higher standard. Yeah, I've seen those studies. Um, there was an economics class, I think it okay. was, and it was um, probability that person was staying major from freshman year to senior mm -hmm. year based on the grade they got in their first class. And for men, that number was, I mean, that percentage was roughly the same whether they got an A or, whether they, or a D, but for women, it, it just dropped off, it declined from A, most likely D, like they, they, they uh -huh. dropped out and they didn't do it anymore. Um, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I kind of, I, I just, I think it's very problematic. I don't always understand why people want to say that it's over because we're so very clearly dealing with the impact. And especially as a Cornell student, I feel a little weird being in the same institution as the people who've done this this research, yes, to be honest, definitely. it would be really great if we could have a conversation with them. I mean, what is what, what is your agenda here? Do you not? And then look at the students who are on your campus. Can you really say that's true? Yeah, it's almost seems sort of painful, right? Because it's sort of coming from that same community, and you already know what the issues are coming from that community. Yeah. Also, <laughs> it just made me think about this. It's kind of like Dan, if you do, Dan, if you don't. Like you're being trapped on both sides, so one, you're not getting support or the encouragement. But on the other hand, as someone who's approaching the end of their PhD, I'm applying for jobs. I have been told I was a unicorn almost every time 
when I go to faculty members or alumni and I ask for help or I just, you know, I'm networking, I'm talking about jobs. Um, with one person, I, I remember this phone conversation very vividly. We were talking and then halfway through the conversation, I say something that alludes to the fact that I'm black. And she said, I think I, I was saying I was a part of the National Society of Black Physicists, mm -hmm. something like that. And she said, oh, I didn't know you were black. You, <laughs> you should have told me you were a black woman. Um, and she's like, I'll never repeat this. If you tell me, I'll never admit that I said this to you, but you should make sure that on your application it says you're black because you're a unicorn and everyone wants you. Um, <laughs> I talked to another faculty member and he said, you know, as an African-American woman, you're not going to have any problem finding a job. I, and he just gave all these kind of anecdotal stories. When I first applied to grad school, I, was, I wanted to work with this faculty member. And this is not at Cornell. And I remember saying that I was really interested in this job and this job. And then I said, and he said he didn't have any money. Mm -hmm. and, and then I said, oh, I'm going to get a fellowship. And then he looks at me and goes, oh, that's right. You're black and a woman. You can work on any project you want. And he just went from saying, oh, no, I don't think you should do this to anything you want, whatever project you want. And I remember feeling a little down because when I said I could get any fellowship, I was saying it because I was smart. Mm -hmm. I was saying because I, I just think I'm amazing. I wasn't <laughs> saying it because I was black and yeah. a woman. But he said those things to me. And the irony of it, the way I say it is damn if you do, damn if you don't, is because people are saying that I can get a job and they're saying that I'm going to be so qualified. They're saying that putting, saying I'm black is going to be, or a woman is going to be so powerful. I don't have a job yet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have been applying. I is no one's knocking on my door. No one's like going like, how much money can we pay you? <laughs> and so this idea that there's not that, that there's no more bias or the op maybe the opposite, that there's a bias in my favor. Mm -hmm. And maybe this other bias of being black and a woman, right? I've been called a unicorn. I'm not a unicorn. I am literally a unicorn because I do not exist, mm -hmm. because I do not have a job, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just, you know, someone needs to answer that riddle for me because yeah. I don't see it. And also what's even worse is like, because there's going to be such a um, mentality that you should get a job, if you don't, then they're going to be like, obviously there's something wrong with you. You know, like yeah. you're going to be screwed that way. Um, it's just hard having this conversation with people. And every time they talk to me, on the one hand, if I get a job, they're going to say it because I'm black and I'm a woman. And if I get the and if and when I'm still looking for the job, they're like, oh, of course you're going to get it because you're a woman. You're just like you're a unicorn. So, it's, you know, make up your minds, really. One thing I'd also like to interject with is that I think it's also interesting how these type of studies often look at just STEM. Whereas mm -hmm. like a lot of other humanities disciplines, like I think that people like to think it's a, a paint a rosy picture of gender parity. But for example, like history is a pretty conservative discipline. And there's a recent study that showed that men with study with families tend to get rewarded in history, whereas women with families tend to get punished for it. Uh, but also like the, the this gender disparity between women and men in philosophy has been a big topic. Mm -hmm. And philosophy is known for having a lot of problematic individuals in it. Um, but that's a very diplomatic way of saying yeah, it. Yeah, like there's been some like very outrageous examples, unfortunately, mm -hmm. in the field of philosophy. But I think that there's also sort of this, um, perhaps another sort of bias, a gendered bias that goes across disciplines and like what sort of things are women suited for. And mm -hmm. that's probably perhaps um, making people be a bit oblivious about um, greater structural inequalities that go across the STEM humanities divide as right. well. Right. And I think um, Meg Yuri, who's a professor at Yale, gives a great talk about this and so the idea that more women can't do math or they don't go into 
um, disciplines that have math in it. But when you think about it, or it's, it's actually true that astrophysics, astronomy and physics, they require the same mathematical skills. Mm -hmm. but, they're, but yet astronomy has way more women than, it, than the physics field does. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just about the skills. It's actually about the, the culture and how they accept people and, again, the ability of women to succeed in there. And it, it has nothing to do with the math. I thought it would be a good way to end by just pointing out that, pointing out that when we have these type of discussions, and we've been talking about gender because of this paper, but it, I think it would also extend to any other type of um, groups like LGBT or um, ethnicity. And there's always this idea in hiring or college applications, any, any type of mm -hmm. admissions process or hiring process that there's a compromise between excellence and diversity. That yeah, either you have yeah. the most, you get a diverse applicant, but you're not gonna get your best applicant or <laughs> you get the best applicant, but you're not getting the most diverse pool. You don't look that diverse. And there, it's no trade-off. If, if, if anything, diversity makes you better. You're better able to perform or to actually um, perform, um, especially in this day and age where the complex, the problems are so complex. Mm -hmm. And there's research by Scott Page, um, some to suggest that we'll probably list some links here about this in our um, description. But again, there is no trade-off. And I think the idea that there, we're always conceiving of these problems as trade-offs, that if we hired a woman, the man, that's automatically saying the, one, the man was going to be better, and that's not yeah, the case. and implicitly that the better candidate is obviously like a straight white guy, right? Yeah, or that the better candidate is going to make your group a better group and be more productive. That's also not true. Mm -hmm. I think that's a, a good place to end perhaps. And maybe I'd, I'd just like to add one anecdote sure. from, uh, from the humanities side, because I've been very interested in my own work on the, the entrance of women into the field of medicine and medical science. But it's really been interesting that, that, that women were really only allowed into the field of medical science in the latter half of the 19th century. Um, and actually, like a woman even wrote um, an award-winning essay that um, disproved the, that women couldn't do high, higher education because of menstruation. And the name of the scientist was Mary Putnam Jacobi. <sighs> and her study was good enough that it won the Harvard Boylston Award um, mm -hmm. for the fact that she was able to prove that women's intellectual capabilities are not um, being held back by menstruation, but nonetheless, mm -hmm. the the actual um, tracks by doctors that were against women's education were far more popular than hers, even after she published it. Wow. So it got um, so this particular uh, track that I'm talking about, Sex and Education by Dr. Edward Clark, was published like at least went through eleven reprintings through the 19th century. After even though she actually published um, a scientific study, so there's a way even though she had entrance into this. Um, into medical science and publish something that was definitive, something that was like as good and peer-reviewed as you possibly get at the time, it still wasn't enough. And that was, and what was still more popular was the one that was against women. I'm speechless. I, <laughs> I just, I'm just thinking about the idea that administration would stop a woman from being able to think. Yeah, well, the idea was perform. that like it takes, um, that women can't have the energy to both like send energy to their reproductive organs and to their brains at the same time. This was actually what he was arguing. And this guy was like, I think a prof uh, medical professor, I think at both Harvard and Penn. And boo, okay.
Yeah, sorry. So that's sort of a little bit depressing <laughs> note, but there's a way in which in, it shows sort of shows that inclusion is not the end. That inclusion is a step, but it's not enough to really completely change a culture. And I think that this is a really important example of that. Yeah, actually, I would agree with that. Yeah. So looking forward, um, again, I think the structure, the structure needs to change. Um, women are not taking a man's space, and as long as that idea can, in any way, be construed that that's not product productive for anybody and today we're solving the most complex problems we've ever solved in human history um, we're getting smaller smaller details so and just merging of fields all together and this idea of just having only one voice being heard is not helping anybody mm -hmm. well thank you very much for listening to us this is Zion yeah this is Liz Wayne and we'll see you next time